Support for this podcast comes from the Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to making Texas businesses safer, stronger, better. Learn more about how Texas Mutual helps protect your people and your business at texasmutual.com better. Janie Barrera is the founder and CEO of an investment company with an $80 million loan portfolio with 10 offices and borrowers in 13 states. As you'll hear, she did not follow at all a traditional path to founding, building, and running her finance firm. Barrera's firm, initially named Axion Texas, but more recently branded as Lift Fund, is one of the nation's most successful microlenders. Janie is a kind of superhero of sorts in my town. And we began by talking about her origin story, where she acquired her superpowers. This is No Hill for a Climber from Texas Public Radio. I'm Michael Taylor. Well, I'm coming to you from my exclusive podcast studio in my shirt closet in uh, downtown San Antonio, Texas, which is normally about a half mile from your house because you're my neighbor. But I understand you are not at home. Uh, Tell me where you're podcasting from. I'm podcasting from Corpus Christi, Texas, my hometown. And you, I understand you grew up there, but this is not your childhood home. Uh, my childhood home was in a low to mod income level neighborhood in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, this, would, this is posh compared to where I grew up. You described your parents to me earlier as small business owners and restaurateurs. What, what was their business? So they owned La Mexicana Restaurant on Chaparral Street, downtown Corpus Christi. My first job actually was at 14, um, being a waitress there at the restaurant. And all my life, I remember having some kind of an entrepreneurial setting because my dad would buy and sell stuff. He, you know, he'd go to the auction and buy a closet full of stuff unknown to him what was in the boxes. He would just auction and bring it back to see what kind of treasures he would find and then try to sell those. My mother's mother had a little tiendita, a store in Laredo, Texas. Um, so it's always, I've always been around people having their little businesses. Was it the expectation that you would work for your parents? So for me, my whole life has been of choice. I've never been expected to do anything, except, except my, my recalling that in 1961, my brother Bob was stationed in, uh, in England. He was in the Air Force. And uh, I have a typewritten note on my wall in a frame at Lifund office that says, and I'm five years old at that time, and it says on there, uh, you know, keep up your typing, uh, keep up the good work, because I would type him a letter, and, uh, you know, keep up the good work. One day, you will be a secretary at the Wilson Tower, which was this big, huge um, building in downtown Corpus Christi. Uh, where all the executives would, um, you know, have their offices. And so to, in my brother's eyes in 1961, being a secretary was a pretty good deal, right? But at 18, I told my parents that I was going to enter the convent. And my dad said, hmm, I'd rather you become another religion <laughs> than do this, because they didn't, uh, they didn't, didn't know any religious. So I entered the Incarnate Word and Blessed Sacrament Sisters at the age of 18 and was an Incarnate Word Sister for 15 years. I want to spend a little bit of time with 18-year-old Janie, who is rebelling from her father by joining a convent, 
which is an unusual narrative, at least in from today's eyes, from 2021. I didn't realize that I was rebelling against my father. That's very interesting. I guess you're, you're, from your perspective, having children, that's how the, the take on it would be. In the year 2021, it's a very radical choice. It's even more radical now, but even then it would have been pretty radical. It's, a, it's quite a big life step. Even idealistic, woke 18-year-olds today are not generally becoming um, religious, right? Yeah, and it was an opportunity as well. When I was still a sister, I worked for the diocese. Uh, I was their telecommunications director. So we started the first nonprofit radio stations, one in Corpus Christi and one in Laredo, KLUX and KHOY, which are still going. And uh, I remember doing the paperwork and, you know, filling it out to send to... Uh, to get the license and so on. I remember picking out the names, actually. K-L-U-X means light, and K-H-O-Y means oi, you know, today. So as I'm reflecting on your questions and these answers, I guess what I'd like to do is start things, right? So I helped start that. And um, I actually, I don't know if you knew this, Mike, but I had a 30-minute weekly television show every Sunday morning on the NBC affiliate in Corpus Christi, Texas. It was called The Gulf Coast Catholic. I've learned a lot of things in terms of my communication skills because I interviewed people myself for uh, this talk show that we had. And so talking about starting things up, when I was hired back in uh, for, to work for the diocese, I guess I was 28 years old, 21 years old, to start to do that show, specifically to produce this show every Sunday morning. Um, we get a new bishop. The bishop says that he's going to bring a... Um, a new person to take my job as because I, I, I was the director. Being in religious life is like you being in your marriage. You've got to work at it. So when the bishop comes in and says, I'm going to have somebody replace you, and I ask him, well, could I interview for the position? He says, no, but you can work for him. It was a blow to me. I just said, I just can't do this. And the sister said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go get my MBA, because that's, that was the reason that he said to me that I was not qualified for the job, was because I didn't have any bez- business acumen. <laughs> How many years at that point had you been leading up the founding of radio stations and leading up the television show? 13, 14 years, yeah. You've been doing 13, 14 years of essentially a startup and a building an organization, at which point you were deemed unqualified, and we needed a man, that's a man's job, probably, to run that situation. I mean, in retrospect, those, I agree with you, but at that time, I'm still young, I'm in my 30s, right? But, you know, when, you, when you're in religious life, that's not part of the deal, you want to serve people. And so my feelings at that time was that I was devastated that he did not acknowledge the work that I had done, right? So that's, that, was my, that was my feeling at that time. So I asked the, the sisters if I could come to San Antonio to get my MBA. And you remained within the order when you were getting your MBA. You had not left the order. You, you were under, still a sister, but just getting your MBA. And then my goal was to, I want to, the, the gentleman that took my job was being paid $50,000 to do my work. And so I guess I did have a goal at that point. I said, I'm trying to look for a job that will pay me at least $50,000. 50000 and one extra dollar, <laughs> something above that guy. I would have found incredibly frustrating to have accomplished what you accomplished and then to have somebody come in 
It is also interesting to me that you remember how much he was paid, what the contrast was between what you were being paid, what you'd accomplished, and then suddenly he's put in, on top of you. It just would have been, that would have driven me crazy. And so I just want to express my empathy for 32-year-old Janie. That's, that would have been rough. My sum total of my experience and knowledge of what it's like for somebody to leave the convent comes from Julie Andrews leaving in The Sound of Music when they break into song, How Do We Solve a Problem Like Maria? And I'm just picturing a, a very contentious song of chorus of nuns talking about how do we solve the problem of Janie after she's off to, <laughs> to San Antonio <laughs> living an independent life. We have to go through a discernment process. It is a step-by-step, -step, you know, program that you that you go through. And so they want to make sure that I was making the right decision for me. And they were very supportive of whatever decision I needed to make. And, uh, and to date, I'm still very close to those sisters. They're in my will. Uh, they will always be part of my life. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll discuss what a microlender does, how it interacts with traditional banking, and how Lyft Fund still needs to learn how to take its own advice. In Texas business, success doesn't happen by accident. Even the best operations need careful planning, a great team, and loads of hard work. Texas Mutual Insurance Company has helped all kinds of Texas businesses grow and thrive for more than 30 years with expert safety guidance and great workers' compensation coverage. With the right workers' comp partner, business is safer, stronger, better. Learn more at texasmutual.com better. Now I want to get into the mission-oriented finance institution that you've founded and built. I don't think folks, most people don't know what micro-lending is. But maybe if they've heard of it, it tends to be, as people describe, a, a very small amount of money often given to women in a, probably an informal setting in a poverty-stricken country. You're right, Mike. Most people do associate micro-lending with developing countries. And having a, a, a small amount of money in the hands of hardworking people to be able to become self-sufficient. Now, I think that this is not the way you're doing lending now. Is, did you do any lending like that in the early 90s? We did try it. We did. And the only place that it worked was with cab drivers. Let's say four guys, and they were mostly guys. Four guys would borrow money together. They could buy a car. they get the medallion. They worked that car 24-7 between the four of them. they pay off that loan. Now the second guy can get a taxi, right? And so it worked there. All right. I want to return a little bit back to Janie as startup and founder of then Axion, now renamed Lift Fund. What I've always said is the type of financing that we did, not now, but when we first started, was not high finance. It was simple finance. It's how do you reconcile your checkbook financing? How much money do you make? How much money do you spend? What do you have at the end of the day to pay Lift Fund? and not put you in any harm's way. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that another big distinguishing characteristic between traditional banking and small business lending and Lift Fund is a bank's not in the business of trying to train their customers, but you all are in the business uh, and maybe harking all the way back to thinking of your parents and who didn't know 
they knew how to prepare food perhaps or receive customers. They didn't know how to build out a financial reporting or to run a business in a sophisticated way. So the, this capacity raising is part of micro lending or at least part of your mission. The banks are just, it's just not profitable or scalable for them to do that for most of their customers. That's correct. My parents, you know, relied too much on the bookkeeper that they hired and didn't understand. And the bookkeeper, I think, was responsible as well because he should have told my parents, hey, don't, you know, don't use up all your cash here. You got to pay your taxes here, you know, those kinds of things. But anyway, that being said, I think we all, you know, need to, to think about how we help the, our small businesses. So we are a not-for-profit organization. We do not make, if you look at our average loan size right now, it's under $20,000. We've done analysis that we don't even break even on any loan under $25,000. In other words, we don't pay our expenses from the revenue off this loan. So that's why banks aren't doing it, right? These small loans, I mean, it would be the same for them. It doesn't generate enough income for banks and they have stockholders who say, we want a return. I wonder if you could just explain, because I believe this is true, but I'd love to hear it directly from you, why banks are incentivized for regulatory reasons to work with you all, that they need to be supporting institutions like Lift Fund through the Community Reinvestment Act. Is that easily explainable? So you are absolutely right about the Community Reinvestment Act and its role within our institution. Banks are required to either have a presence or lend in low to moderate income level neighborhoods. If they don't have a branch uh, or if they don't have clients coming in that meet that requirement, what are they gonna do? They can work with organizations like Lift Fund. We are considered a Community Development Financial Institution, a CDFI, Community Development Financial Institution. And so by banks working with CDFIs, we become their intermediary for them to satisfy the requirement that the federal government has put upon them about CRA. We are a qualified investment in the eyes of the OCC, the FDIC, Federal Reserve. And those three organizations are the examiners for banks. So banks get examined every three to five years. They go and want to know not only their assets, the loans that have on books and so on. They want to know, what are you doing for CRA? So if they see Lift Fund or other CDFIs on there, you know, it's a check. They, they meet that check. I understand that there are banking industry groups that have fought against CRA regulations. They'll probably continue to fight against CRA regulations. And some banking industry groups are going to want to lower their needs to, to spend money on Community Reinvestment Act projects, right? That's correct. Have you all felt threatened in recent years? Oh, yes, definitely. I have two final questions, which, what do you wish you understood better about finance in business, if anything? I wish that I had paid more attention, starting 10 years ago, to our own assets. Remember, we are a not-for-profit, non-depository organization. For the first 15 years of Lift Fund, my policy and my mission, my philosophy, and everybody agreed, right, was that let's lend out as much as we have. Don't sit on it. Put it out to work. That was fine in the very beginning. That was great when you had a $10 million existing portfolio and $9 million in debt. 
we're big now. <laughs> we have over 50 million in outstanding portfolio. And I can't say that now because we have had invested so much over time. So for example, in 2010, we got a $5 million grant unsolicited from Chase Bank. I should have kept some of that money in equity so that I can say then and leverage that. Because as you know, as an investor and financier, you wanna know that there is equity there that you can leverage to borrow more. And that's, that's something I did not do and we've started to do. Okay, building assets for the next decade. Yeah, I mean, that, and isn't, isn't that ironic? Going back to the irony of things, what are we doing? We try to teach our small businesses to do that. We're, we constantly are training them to do, build assets. And shoot, I wasn't even taking care of my own place, right? So that's a lesson learned. Do it. Do it yourself, too. The cobbler's children go unshod. But my final question, and the arc of it starts with your brother with an aspiration for you as a five-year-old that someday you could be a secretary. But in the light of that, do you consider yourself a success in business? Yes. And it hasn't come because I've done it by myself. It is because of all the people that I have surrounded myself over the years, including yourself, uh, that believe in the mission. And um, any of the naysayers, I just don't listen to because the track record is there. It actually reminds me 25 years ago when um, I was still, you know, hustling for money to go out and get people to invest in in Lyft Fund. I was told by a banker uh, that I don't see how this program will ever work. You know, I wish I could find that banker now so I can tell him uh, we're still here. Like any great hip hop star, Janie, you seem to be fueled a little bit by other people's doubts. (laughs) (laughs) I have the impression, Janie, there's not a lot stopping you. Uh, (laughs) Neither your your dad, nor your brother, nor the bishop, nor the folks along the way, people saying no. Nor cancer, Mike. Did you know that I had breast cancer a few years ago? I did not know that, no. So I didn't want people to know that. And so actually when I lost my hair, I just wore a wig that looks just like my hair. (laughs) <laughs> clever so knock on wood one more year and then because it has to be five years um i see you'll be you'll be clear of you'll be five years clear in a year from now okay in october of this year actually great congratulations on that thank you Surviving thank that. You. i'm really pleased to talk to you janie and, and very impressed No Hill for a Climber is produced by Ben Henry and Dan Katz at Texas Public Radio. 